I would love to place bets on which of the trends actually played out and which ones may not have, just to see like what kind of what kind of score did these people have? Are they batting four hundred? <laughs> I see a whole new direction for the sports books in Las Vegas. This is great. It's a great idea. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. The annual horizon reports from the New Media Consortium, or NMC for short, have been a staple in the world of educational technology since 2004 as an outgrowth of the original project established in 2002. The Horizon Report series has consistently focused on identifying and describing developments in educational technologies and practices through the lens of a five-year period, subdivided into short-term, mid-term, and long-term adoption forecasts. In recent years, the report has been organized categorically into three buckets. Key trends accelerating technology adoption, significant challenges impeding technology adoption, and important developments in technology. Thematically speaking, the report defines what they call meta-categories that reflect movements in higher education, and each of the year's 18 topics is linked to one or more of these themes. Expanding access and equity, spurring innovation, fostering authentic learning, leveraging data, improving the teaching profession, and spreading digital fluency. It's also worth noting that over the years, NMC also produced important reports focused on other sectors such as K-12, libraries, and museums. Before we jump into discussing this year's report, one more note about both the history and future of the New Media Consortium. In late 2017, the organization ceased operations and filed bankruptcy. In February of this year, EDUCAUSE, a nonprofit association focused on higher education and information technology, announced their acquisition of NMC and their assets. EDUCAUSE already had a long-standing history of collaborating with NMC on the Horizon Report, so they were well positioned to go forward with publication of the 2018 Higher Education Edition, despite the organizational upheaval. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kutraitiwa, Aaron Kraft. And I'd like to start by pointing out that this is the first episode of our third season, and we have so much awesomeness planned for the upcoming year with lots of fresh topics and some very special guests. A quick announcement. Our regular listeners might notice that another one of our founding IBD crew has gone rogue. Yes, our very own Dr. Stephen Crawford has recently left ASU for new exciting adventures at Maricopa Community Colleges. However, we believe once an IBDer, always an IBDer. So we are certain he'll pop in from time to time, especially in response to any episodes where we drop in learning styles. <laughs> All right. So Horizon Report, gang. Let's start with the big question. Why? Why are we talking about this report today? Or in other words, what history do you have, if any, with this report series? As far as the Horizon Report goes, I had no idea what it was until we started talking about it here. In A our... very blunt answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. I didn't, I, I mean, newer to higher ed, and I didn't know what it was until we started talking about it within our team over the last few years. But the why is an interesting question, because why not? I mean, this report goes over everything that is trending right now and everything that has been trending over the years as far as educational technology goes. And it, and even with it being more focused on higher education, so much of it even hits where K-12 was hitting when I was in the K-12 environment. So 
I enjoy getting these reports every year and seeing what's going on and seeing what's been phased out and then what's coming in. Right. I, I don't think I knew this even existed until I started working here. Blunt. Very blunt, Aaron. <laughs> um, I, I think I heard that somewhere before. <laughs> Maybe I'm not the only one to feel that way. But uh, no, that's why I appreciate the instructional design work that's happening at the College of Nursing for ASU, because uh, the, uh, the leaders of our charge are with it. You yes. know, uh, they really know uh, what's going on. And they know what an instructional designer does, and they point the way for me towards professional growth and development, which I really appreciate. Because you know, I had been working as an instructional designer for two years, and then I was assisting designers for two years before that. So I've been in the field for four years now, and I don't think I've ever heard of the Horizon Report until recently. So I appreciate that uh, insight. And then speaking of insights, I, I love reading what these experts in the fields think is going to happen. I would love to, I'm not a betting man, so I say this figuratively, but I'd love to place bets on what actually pans out and what doesn't. You know, it'd be interesting to go back a few years ago and then see what, which of the trends, like the short-term trends, actually played out and which ones may not have, right? Just, just to see, like, what kind, of, what kind of score did these people have? What are, are they batting 400? I see a whole new direction for the sports books in Las Vegas. This is great. It's a great idea. I feel like the Horizon Report was one of those things that I grew up with, for lack of a better term, in educational technology and learning about the nonprofit communities that were out there and the really invested people who were curious and interested in advancing our knowledge in a way that was just outside the bounds of only the things that they were working on. And I always really appreciated that. I think the first time I ever ran across the Horizon Report was probably around 2006 or 2007. And printed copies were distributed at a local ed tech conference that I went to. And so I, you know, checked in and they handed me my agenda and they handed me this thing. And I'm like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it's the Horizon Report. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is. But okay, took it, you know. Went back to the office the next day, I started flipping through it, and I was like, this is really cool because it's organized. It immediately gave me kind of a framework for thinking about innovation and the development of educational technology. And that attracted me enough to continue reading it through the years because it was, even if I didn't necessarily agree with their assessments on the specific technologies, the frameworks really made sense to me. And then in later years, I actually started to use it as a prop, if you will, with my own students in uh, pre-licensure K-12 teacher education classes to talk about, well, how do you figure out what's coming down the horizon? Where do you even start? And it was a great way to jumpstart that conversation in, yes, an organized kind of way. You like the organized aspect. Very much. Like those frameworks, <laughs> categories, meta-categories. It's great. <laughs> the inner nerd. That's right. Uh, screams with joy. No, I can appreciate that, though. So my question is, and just to clarify or to confirm, this Horizon Report is centered around technology and teaching specifically. Is that correct? Yes. Technology and practices. Practices. Mm-hmm. And although this one is geared towards higher education, like you said, you were using it with K-12, it still is very connected. Things might be in different categories, maybe, I'm wondering. I haven't seen a K-12 edition, but I'm almost assuming that the categories might be a little tweaked 
but it's very similar in the trends that are happening. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, with the K-12 version, it was sort of, in some cases, they thought about it through um, like a district resource lens. So it was Mm -hmm. interesting that they brought some of that ROI component in some of the previous year's reports that I read, which is an interesting thing to consider. Well, now that we have two no experience and one growing up experience. Yeah, you said what, 2007? (laughs) Yeah. My, my first experience with educational technology started in 2010. Wow. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I think uh, Jeanette's the veteran here. <laughs> I feel like I should win something. <laughs> Start that betting pool or something. You win a higher salary. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> Let's chat about those meta categories mentioned in the intro a little bit. Did any of those categories like resonate with you as an instructional designer and and what we see in the trenches as it were of higher education and so those categories including expanding access and equity spurring innovation fostering authentic learning leveraging data improving the teaching profession and spreading digital fluency the one that always gets me and maybe this stems from my experience as a computer lab teacher and an educational technology mentor is uh, spreading digital fluency. I feel like we're at such a time where you're either you've been working with a lot of technology, so you're very fluent, or you were in that group of students that didn't start out with any technology and are trying to catch up. Mm -hmm. And trying to get everyone on the same with the same types of experiences is difficult everywhere. I mean, in every part of education. And I've been in so many conversations that have focused on this exact issue of how do we get everyone to be fluent in technology so that we can kind of move forward with a lot of these things, um, with a lot of the initiatives that are coming about. Yeah, digital literacy is, is a complex topic because not everybody has equal access to technology. There are some fundamental barriers to accessing technology. Not only age being a big one, but even geography as well, right? Some just locations, just depending on where you're born, you may not be in a location where the internet infrastructure can exist for you to easily access it, right, to access technology. And then there's a a vicious cycle that begins because those well-developed countries or cities that have strong uh, infrastructure that allow for access to technology, you, you, you see a lot of people with digital literacy centered in those areas. But, and then having digital literacy means being able to get jobs. It means being able to get higher paying jobs. Right. Which means you can afford a new computer every four or five years because that's kind of how you need to update them. Right. And then computer, you know, even a a decent laptop is going to run you five hundred dollars. If you want a MacBook, what is that? Fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Right. But guess what? You have digital literacy skills. You're able to get a job with them. And that job helps you buy the next laptop. But these countries, these lesser developed countries are just these geographical locations, even in America. Even the U.S., I should say, 
uh, these rural areas that can't get that sort of uh, internet infrastructure and access, there's that vicious cycle that happens where like you start getting left behind because you don't have access. And then suddenly you don't have that better paying job because you don't have the digital literacy skills. So you can't afford the technology. And so you, it, the situation gets more dire and dire, whereas the areas with access, they see this exponential growth. So adding to that, though, not only do you have that those geographical barriers or um, the haves and the haves not have nots, but you also have the type of digital literacy. You have those computer based skills, laptops, word processing types of systems. But then you also have mobile apps or mobile literacy, which is a whole other type of digital literacy and you might be very fluent in working that phone and working those apps but can you do that on a computer and in higher ed i mean i've i know students who can do everything on their phone but you put them on the computer and they can't move through word documents or google pages because they're so used to doing everything through an app on the phone well, you know, I feel bad for my parents' generation. They they figured out Word. They figured out Microsoft uh, Office Suite, right? And this doesn't go for everybody. I am generalizing, but obviously there's some people who get it. Um, I'm speaking about my parents. <laughs> right? like, they, they've mastered Word. They've mastered Excel. They've mastered how to send me an email. But now we have Google Docs, mm-hmm. right. right? Now we have Messenger through Facebook, but we also have the phone's native messaging app, right? Mm-hmm. They don't always know which one's which when they're sending me something. So mm-hmm. I'll get the first message of three in, in one platform, but then they'll send the video attachment through the other platform. <laughs> and they don't know that they're sending me to two different locations to keep up with their story, right? And there's no use in me trying to explain it. I'm just, you know, we're, we're communicating. It works fine. Right. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I feel bad for them that I think you're starting to see that, that gap and that struggle, even with the newer technologies. Well, and I think that that's what helped or adds to the barriers of creating a digital fluency is that everything is moving so fast. New technologies are coming out so quickly. How do you keep up with them if you're still trying to catch up with them? That was a great example, Erin, and actually I love how this conversation illustrates kind of how you connect the dots between even two of those categories, how we think about expanding access and equity connects to digital fluency, connects to that bottom line of what does it mean to getting a better job and, and you know, being mobile in our ability to be successful in life in general. I think those are really important thoughts. As far as the actual topics presented in the Horizon Report this year. Let's dive into those trends, challenges, and developments, the actual hot topics hot topics of the day. <laughs> so here's how we're going to do this. We'll pick one trend, one challenge, and one development to talk through, and then we'll definitely encourage our listeners to go out and check out the rest of the report because there's lots of interesting stuff in there. So let's start with trends. We're going to take a little bit of a dive here into interdisciplinary studies. What does that mean to you in this sort of higher education lens and our work as instructional designers? Before we get into what exactly it goes into in the Horizon Report, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of interdisciplinary studies is my own background with my degree being in interdisciplinary arts and performance with an emphasis in digital video, a minor in dance, moving into a post back in in elementary education, which went into 
educational technology and curriculum with an instruction in reading and then becoming an, an instructional designer. Poster child. <laughs> So automatically, just reading interdisciplinary studies, I was, that was my place. <laughs> Proof of concept. I love that. So you're the trend. I am an interdisciplinary study. Your career arc <laughs> is an exemplar of this growing trend. Yes, without the badging. Yeah, it, it wasn't until, I, so I spent several years in Asia, and it wasn't until I went and left the U.S. that I, I could actually understand the U.S. Uh, economy, for example, much more clearly. I left when I was in my like early 20s, so, and that was at the time when I, I had finished my graduate, or my undergraduate degree in political science, because I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but that was, you know, good enough, right? A good enough start. But observing the U.S. from a distance, I was able to see that, oh, our economy is based on specialization. You have to get really good at one thing, like super good at it, and then you do that thing, and then people will call you and pay you for your expertise. Mm -hmm. and once I figured that out, then I think the rest of my uh, like educational uh, path forward sort of opened up. However, it sounds like that's the traditional way. That's That was the old way. That's what's changing now. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had this... Um, I guess if you're talking about credentials, that way of economic development or, or that sort of model is based upon like a vertical stacking of your credentials. And what I mean by that is you get your high school diploma, you get your four-year degree or your two-year degree, mm -hmm. and you know each, and then you might get your master's after that, and then your PhD. But one stacks upon the other, mm -hmm. right? But what we're seeing now, you're looking at a more horizontal accumulation of credentials, expertise that is relevant in your field, but that doesn't necessarily depend on your previous you know, diploma or graduate degree or whatever certificate you have, but it's a, it's a flat hierarchy. Well, one of my favorite quotes is, and I, I can't remember exactly where it comes from, but it's the quote that we are preparing students for jobs that have yet to exist. Exactly. So how, to, how do we say, this is exactly what I want you to learn. This is the exact pathway I want you to take to get to this spot that we don't know even exists right now. Mm -hmm. So why, is, why isn't there more happening with interdisciplinary studies? And I think we're trying to get there, which is why it's in this Horizon report. We're trying to figure out how that can be done. But that's always been one of my favorite quotes because it's very true. And even with having a, uh, my son in college now, I think about how I've asked, you know, at times, what do you want to study? What do you want to get into? Then I go back to thinking, well, he probably has no clue at this point because there's so much going on and there's so much to choose from. It's probably more of a question of what are some of the things you want to learn about? What are some of the things you want to study versus what do you want to be when you get out of here? It's a completely different way of thinking. I'm mm -hmm. so glad you brought up that whole, you know, component of we're dealing with an unknown future in a sense with the job market and how do we prepare, you know, our future, not only workers, but leaders. How do we prepare them for this very dynamic, evolving world and, you know, prepare them with skills that exceed the boundary of disciplinary knowledge? And so I think there's a lot to think about here in, in the Horizon Report. And I'll add that at ASU, one of our foundation 
educational design aspirations is exactly that, to fuse intellectual disciplines and to create new types of knowledge. And I think we see that every day at ASU, frankly. I mean, I think people here really do embrace that culture of creativity, thinking outside the box, and particularly solving real world challenges in different ways, which is exciting, I think. I mean, there's, I think, a lot of room to grow in terms of data collection and evidence-based analysis of whether or not those approaches work. There's definitely some room to work still there, but it's a good place to start. It's Mm -hmm. a realistic place to start. Well, we've been labeled as one of the most innovative <laughs> universities in I the U.S. I was holding on to that. <laughs> fourth time. Is it the fourth time? Fourth, fourth time. Year in a, row. in a row, right? Yep. Yeah. Go number one in innovation. Word. <laughs> so, but okay, so kind of getting back to what Celia was saying, it sounds like higher ed needs to adapt to suit the modern needs of the world. I would agree. I think. I think higher ed is trying to do it. Figuring out how to get there is a whole other thing because you're you're removing this idea or this concept of traditional education, very static, stay in one spot, don't move. And you see a lot of trying to get active learning happening and creating new spaces where creativity and collaboration, all the things that the world are, is moving into. But how do we get an entire institution to move that way all at the same time? You know Especially what I mean? Like a it's gigantic lumbering one. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, accreditation, mm-hmm. recognition from employers, the different kinds of degrees are still yes. or even perhaps more desirable than traditional ones. There are so many components. It's not just in the hands of instructors and you know program developers. It, it's a much bigger picture. Well, and you take those experiences from all the leaders in these higher institute, higher ed institutions and trying to get them to realize where the movement and the growth needs to happen and get them to understand it because they didn't, they didn't grow in the field that way. So how do you get them to start to move forward in that direction as well sometimes? Good point. Yeah, I think it's natural. I've actually started to expand my expertise. So you can't say it's horizontal stacking necessarily. This is more of what they call value-added stacking of credentials, where I'm building horizontally my expertise upon an existing uh, undergraduate and graduate degree. Mm-hmm. So I went vertical for a bit, but now I'm expanding horizontally. I'm, right now I'm in a graduate certificate program for technical communications. Several years back, Around 2007, when Jeanette first uh, saw the Horizon Report, (laughs) I was getting my TEFL, Teach English as a Foreign Language, online certificate, Ah. Mm -hmm. which was relevant for uh, education, Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. educational career. And, um, oh gosh, there was something else. Oh, well, you know, we have to get the QM certifications, Mm -hmm. right? right? I mean, to me, this is exactly what's happening right now. And it it was so natural for me to think, yeah, let me just get some small credentials along the way instead of focusing on what's after a master's, oh, a PhD Mm -hmm. or EDD, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, I'm going horizontal. And that came so naturally to me. And I think a lot of people just, you you sort of naturally feel the trend and you go with it. And and maybe, you know, higher ed starting to notice that. And, you know, they they have to pay their bills too. So they're going to start meeting those needs. Well, how many people do you know started out in one area and stayed with that exact area their entire career? My parents. Yeah. Yeah. The evolution of the job mm-hmm. market. I mean, that's the dynamic. What are the law of averages on the number of career changes anymore for a given individual? Well, as it was stated in the Horizon Report, students will now hold a series of jobs throughout yes. their career. So they need the academic background that's going to give them that flexibility and adapt 
adaptability, if I can say that word. Good, Aaron. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> wait, wait, are you mocking me? <laughs> That's a mocking laugh. It was. <laughs> Can't even tell anymore. Well, that was fun. Let's talk about challenges. <laughs> I'll start by pointing out another part of that framework that I so enjoy and appreciate in the Horizon Report is that they have labeled or thought of problems in sort of three distinct categories. They uh, highlight them as being solvable, meaning those that we understand and know how to solve, those that are difficult, those that we understand but for which solutions are elusive, and then what they refer to as wicked problems, those that are complex to even define, much less address. Side note, the Horizon Report was where I first learned about this concept of a wicked problem, <laughs> which actually has quite a bit of literature behind it, and it's a fascinating way to look at complex systems with many layers of, of challenges and potential solutions that are very hard to articulate. It's a really interesting concept. So for our conversation today, looking at the current year's Horizon Report, the challenge that we're going to highlight is that of improving digital literacy. And we already touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the meta categories. But what have you to say on the specific part of the report on improving digital literacy? I think with this, everything goes back to what we talked about earlier with developing digital fluency. In the report, they referred to the online communication etiquette, digital rights and responsibilities in the blended and online learning settings. Um, they touch on the influence in curriculum design, professional development and student facing services and resources, connecting back to how are higher education leaders pushing this institution wide and getting the buy-in and support for ensuring that digital literacy skills are happening or the improvement under digital literacy is happening. Categorically, I also think about this a little bit in terms of the intersection with information literacy, media consumption literacy, mm -hmm. and that there are other parts about what we think of in this sort of 21st century citizen model, what it means to consume the news and be able to evaluate, you know, things, which is certain, certainly a hot topic in 2018. Mm -hmm. As a challenge, I think you hit you hit it on the head there, Celia, in terms of it's how do we do it? Do, how, how do we define, measure, evaluate that, you know, incoming learners, for example, where are they at? Where do we set the benchmark for where we want them to be? And how do we get them there? How do we get ourselves there? Faculty and staff, it's not really just the learners. It's That's across true. the board finding some comfortable and reasonable level of competency that we can all aspire to, right? Mm -hmm. And the report talks about how the librarians are kind of at the forefront of yeah. a lot of this, going back to the informational literacy part of it. Yeah. So recently I was working on a project. It was for a high school level digital literacy course. I was helping to create assessment tools. And one of the key ideas to combat digital illiteracy was digital libraries. So they, just like the report, came to a similar conclusion that libraries can be sort of the linchpin of the solution to reaching your disparate audiences, or even whether it's external disparate, like you're in a rural community, or whether the student has a sort of psychological gap where they don't know how to discern what's fake news on the internet and what's not. Mm. That having access to digital libraries can help to bridge that digital literacy gap, the digital divide. 
yeah. that can occur. So I would say, yeah, in every university, every college has, well, I would like to think every college, I'm not sure, but uh, most organizations like this have a library. So that's a, a, a great place to start. So it's all the librarians' problem. Great. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. That's where all of this is going to happen. <laughs> no, seriously, we love librarians. We have yes. super high amounts of respect for librarians and all of the work that they do. There were a few librarians when I was at OLC Accelerate last year, and they were very engaged. So, Oh, um, I wanted to bring up a point, too, though, that the Horizon Report hits on is that it's not just up to the schools and the librarians, the universities, but students should also rely on getting their skills from other places. So things like internships, projects, workshops, and other little like short courses, whether it's MOOCs or, you know, but going out and finding other resources and not just relying on getting their digital literacy skills through their their traditional education within the universities. So there's a place for some of that like informal, self-directed kind yes. of competency-focused learning. I think that's a great idea. Right. Well, you know, it's not just about the librarians. I think that's a great place to start, but it's all of our duty, I think, if we're invested in educating the community and as instructional designers we are, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We have to find out where we can be effective. We have to present to faculty every now and then about various things, but embedded within these presentations and lectures are steps towards digital literacy. You know, we're migrating over to a new LMS right now. How do you navigate the new user interface? That's a type of digital literacy. So that's our responsibility to teach them that. I think if you have freshmen coming in, they need to know about the library. I would actually put the onus a lot on the instructors to make sure that the students are connected to the library. So therefore, when they write their papers, which you have to write a paper every, and nearly every class and nearly every <laughs> semester, right, that they know how to research. And if they don't know how to research, at least they can contact that college's librarian and find out how can I find a reliable source for my, my research topic. So in, in, if I'm at home, it's my responsibility to help when my grandmother calls <laughs> to help her out with her issues. <laughs> Issues, right? So it's, some, it's something that we're going to have to tackle comprehensively in whatever way we can. But if you're talking about students, and I'm, I'm thinking mostly the, the freshmen, because I'm thinking of myself as a freshman, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I, I had an instructor, my philosophy instructor, he got really upset with us because nobody was writing a, a, their paper properly. We didn't know how to write a, a thesis statement. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So he devoted one class. Uh, it, he was quite irritated and angry that he had to do that, but he, <laughs> dev he devoted one class to teaching us how to write a paper, but that was promoting illiteracy within us. You have to take time out to do that. The resources are there, but it's about connecting those who have that, who uh, are suffering from that digital divide. That's a good argument and throwback to the conversation we had about team-based course design mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. leveraging those multiple voices at the table to figure out ways mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. embed those literacy components or things that are a little outside the boundary of the disciplinary or subject-based knowledge yeah. to help everybody rise together. I mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. All right. So on to the development source, I like to think about it, the innovative what may or may not actually happen category. <laughs> For today's purposes, let's touch on that segment of mixed reality or MR. Right. So we have this new emerging technology in education, VR, AR, MR. Is there, are there any other R's? Arg. 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 So VR, virtual reality, yes. AR, augmented reality, yes. 
what do the labels mean and where's the Venn diagram overlap with mixed reality? I have no, I, disclaimer, I have no idea what yep. the difference is between mixed reality and augmented reality. All right, all right. So let's go to VR. That's the easiest one, I think. Okay. Right? So I have an Oculus Rift at home. There's also the HTC Vive. Those are the two main headsets that right now, VR headsets that are uh, consumer level, mm -hmm. right? So the idea is you put on a headset, you can't see anything except what's being projected into the headset from your computer. Mm -hmm. And you are in a fully 3D world. You turn around and everything you see is a virtual reality. Mm -hmm. It's created from the computer and it gives you the sense of everything but the smell. Like you really, some of these environments, you actually feel like you're there. It's, it's quite amazing. It's incredibly immersive, but it's also very cost prohibitive. You need at least an $800, maybe even a $1,000 computer just to run these VR environments. Then the headsets themselves can run upwards of four or $500, mm -hmm. depending on which one you go with, right? So VR is probably the most entertaining is probably the most immersive of the three R's, but it's also probably the most difficult to really get into because of that, that cost factor. And then you have to dedicate an entire room. I, I should back up a little bit because we do have like Google Cardboard, which you would put your phone into. So if you have, again, you still need a five to $800 phone to run these types of graphics necessary, but you can buy like a, an Oculus Go or a Google Cardboard and with your phone get a very similar effect. It's not quite as immersive, but you still can, you know, if you spin around 360 degrees, you're still seeing a virtual environment. Mm -hmm. Right, okay, so that's VR. AR is augmented reality. The easiest way to describe it is Pokemon Go. Right, and so we talked mm -hmm. a little bit about that in like episode 13 last season mm -hmm. and understanding that sort of overlay effect. Exactly. So how is that any different from mixed reality? To be honest, I'm figuring this out myself, but I am a, a light hobbyist in, in this field because it's just so darn entertaining. <laughs> so here's what I've come to notice as the differences. I did go to a mixed reality demo one time and what I found interesting was that you put on the headset, but the headset's actually, it has, a, it has a clear visor so you can see through it mm. you, and you can see the the, the room and everything in front of you. So that's one difference between VR and MR, for example. Secondly, mixed reality allowed for everybody in the room that was wearing the headset to see the same exact thing. Now, oh. if I'm playing mm -hmm. Pokemon Go and you're playing Pokemon Go, we may not get the same Pokemon in the same spot. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I might see mine on the table in front of me, but you might have to walk down the hall before one pops up, right? Mm -hmm. And that's augmented reality. So there's still a sort of detachment. It's still sort of a siloed experience for the user in, in a lot of cases, right? Mm -hmm. I'm speaking from experience, so there might be exceptions to the rule. But with the mixed reality, you still needed a powerful computer. I'm not sure you need exactly what you need for VR, but you still need a rather powerful computer and someone running it to create this shared experience. So if, if everybody's in a meeting room, you can have a virtual like graphic appear in front of everybody who's wearing the, the headset. It's, it's a shared experience. So if I'm sitting behind it, I see behind the object. If you're sitting in front of it, you see in front of it. And then you can also interact with it to a certain degree. You know, I think uh, you can you can walk into it or you can pull yourself away from it. I'm not sure if you can actually manipulate what's happening. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can if you have like a little uh, like controller. A yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's still a, a shared experience that you don't necessarily get with augmented reality. So MR seems to be a little bit more intensive than AR. Not quite as intensive as VR. 
and it allows for that shared experience. That's really interesting and helpful. So when I think of MR, I think of uh, the shows like CSI and NCIS. And when I watch those and they go back to their office and they get on the, their computers, they, it actually creates a holographic 3D image that pops up in front of them. And then they start manipulating and they're moving pieces <laughs> around and trying to solve their mystery. So if so, everybody had headsets on. That's... But they don't even have a headset on. It's just them looking at this holographic image that's being projected out in yeah. front of them. And in some of the images that I looked at of mixed reality, not all of them are even wearing a headset. So I think it's like more of a projection that happens. I haven't seen MR <clears throat> without a headset. It could yeah. be the future. Yeah. Or, I mean, because that's all I know is just Googling and trying to figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> more cost prohibitive technology. But if everybody in the room was wearing a headset, that would be mixed reality. Okay. As far as I understand it. So even defining these terms, a little bit of a moving target right now and how yeah. they are, you know, let alone implemented and the potential uh, for them to be used in learning environments. It's rather amorphous, I would say, right now. There certainly seems to be quite a bit of excitement about the potential for implementation in health science related fields. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, certainly we've talked again in other episodes a little bit about how it's simply not possible to take someone inside a spine in, you know, real life in the same way that you could through some sort of virtual or mixed reality application. And that that could be quite a powerful learning experience and bring a different level of understanding. And it's cost effective. Having a, a lab and bringing in cadavers for the students to dive into every time they need to learn something about the human body, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very expensive solution. It's real world experience, but you'll never beat that. Even with MR, I don't think you'll ever beat the real world experience. But you can see things in a way that you've never seen them before, even with a real world experience. Both VR and MR, I think, allow you to see from the inside out. What does this person's cancer look like? Or what do you look like to the cancer? Where, where is it residing in the brain? How can I get to it, right? You can sit there and experiment with all these different ways and see it from all these different angles that you would never be able to do in real life. I imagine it to be a newer form of operator, the game. Well, operation. <laughs> Oper or operation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the game operation. It's like, oh, remove this bone from this body part, <laughs> and then you get zapped when you try to remove it. <laughs> Love that idea. <laughs> so this is where I think you have some of the limitations because right now, unless you have a way to physically manipulate, which VR often through touch controllers lets you manipulate the environment in front of you, but until AR or VR allows for that manipulation, building, synthesizing, and basically anything above our, the higher order thinking skills and within Bloom's uh, taxonomy for the the knowledge domain. Mm -hmm you're still hitting those lower order thinking skills because of that lack of uh, interaction. You can see the spine. Mm -hmm. You can dive into it if you walk into it. It'll, you know, you can you can see the little moving parts inside, but there's still not the capability to manipulate it, to create something or to synthesize something and put it, something new together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's the Good limitation point. right now. Well, and I will point out they have some interesting exemplars and resources in the Horizon Report for those who want to dive in more detail for actual use cases. Something cool to check out. But I think the biggest difference between VR and a or MR and uh, AR is one starts with an A and the other starts with an <laughs> M. <laughs> R. Well, love them or hate them. Shout out to all the skeptics out there. Aaron. It's clear. <laughs> Number one oh skeptic. My God, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think we were more skeptical than he was. 
Well, love them or hate them, shout out to all the skeptics out there. It's clear that these reports have had huge international impact in the educational technology community through the years. Many thanks to Celia and Aaron for nibbling on these various hot topics. Hot topics! <laughs> within the Horizon <laughs> Report context and sharing their thoughts and reactions. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite you, our audience, to take a look at the Horizon Reports, past and present, and share your thoughts by connecting with us on Twitter or by email. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as an in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. What have you to say on the specific part of the report on improving digital literacy? I didn't read that. <laughs> I said that before the podcast. <laughs> what page is that? <laughs> what page is that? <laughs> I'll glance at it while I'll talk. Oh, and page there's 26. our outtakes. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm on. Oh, that's what I'm on. <laughs>